Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Our message today comes from 1 Corinthians, so allow me to read these words and reflect on them. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. Those who buy something, as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world, as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. 1 Corinthians seven twenty-seven through 31 Take care. I tried to hit him and I missed. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. We're glad to have you here today. And uh, we're in a series called The Other Six Days. You'll see it's been explained already what the box stand for. It's really easy for us to understand that on Sundays, when we gather in a place like this, no matter where we worship and we're with other believers, we're inspired to realize that God is worth it. And we're reminded of what he's done. It's the other six days that wear us down. Because we're not always in tune Uh, with other believers. We're not always surrounded with them. And so this series that we're looking at, in light of what we've studied in the book of Romans, is how does the gospel, how does Jesus, how does the faithfulness of God help us every single day of our lives? How does it help us in our marriages, uh, in our parenting? Today the topic is how does it uh, affect those that are single, looking for relationships or not in relationships? How will it affect, and we're going to study this in the next three weeks, how does it affect the way we work, the way we play, the way we rest? What do the other six days look like when we're with Jesus? In week one, Michael DeFazio talked about how the cross identifies and gives us purpose for marriage and how we live out the love of God with one another. In week two, Peter Buckland talked about parenting and how does the cross and the faithfulness of God impact our parenting? What is our role in that? How are we forgiven when we're, we're not effective? And how are we challenged to become more effective in loving and honoring and serving our children? So today I want to talk about a subject that isn't spoken of very much. So on behalf of all of Christendom, please forgive us. Uh, I read recently that 44 to 48% of all church attenders are single or single again. For those that are widowed or divorced. And so when I look at that situation, I realize this is a very fragile subject. And it's a matter that the world has spoken to you more about your singleness than the church has. And so I want to apologize for that. Because this is a safe place, and you can't look at 50% of your audience and ignore one thing that the world's teaching them that we want them to hear the truth over. So I want to handle it well and gently and truthfully. I was hoping someone else would handle it, but it's my role today. Because here's why. I'm going to need your grace today. If you are single or single again, I'm a married man. That doesn't make me superior in anything. I'm a, I'm a married man who's not good at being married. And so I'm going to ask for your grace that as I speak to you from what the Bible teaches me, that you know my heart, which is I don't think you're less anything. 
I think you're everything God wants you to be. Without a relationship, it doesn't define who you are. In our eyes, here's the church. And so if you'll extend me grace as I speak to a condition, I'm not currently in, but the Bible has given me uh, something to talk about. So here's what I want to begin with. It is simply not true that God's will is for all Christians to be married. It simply isn't. And I want to counter some things. I said, I've been thinking after first hour, it, it comes across as a very serious message. I'm not going to be very playful today on stage because I don't want to treat lightly what some people are hurting and grieving over and others are very satisfied in. So it's a very serious message, but I want the tone to be full of hope. I want us to just clear the air. This is an awkward subject for us to talk about because we may not know those singles in our lives and how they truly feel about it, but I do want you to know the culture's told them that they're missing something, and I want church to redeem it. They're not missing anything if they have Jesus Christ. Nothing. Dr. Timothy Keller says in his book on marriage, marriage does not solve our problems. It only serves to reveal them. (laughs) Finally got a laugh. Thank you. But it's true. Well, marriage is, in fact, created and blessed by God. Understand clearly that so is singleness. It's not a lesser condition. It's what God has put in play. And let me show you where that comes from. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 27. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean is that the time is short. Now, what I'm about to read is a very complex, intricate passage, which is concerned with a very complex, intricate subject. But you have to understand that Paul says, because the time is short, is a very, uh, how shall I say it, a sophisticated view of history. And it will explain what we're about to read, verses 29 through 31. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy as if it was not theirs, and those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for the world in its present form is passing away. Notice again, Paul has duplicated this one thought. We are not here forever, so don't act like you are. Does that make sense? Don't become engrossed in the things of the world when they're all going to be left behind when you go to be with your king. And that overarching theme is what Paul is talking about in all of Corinthians. It's what theologians call the overlap of the ages. The easiest way to explain it is the Messiah was going to come and set things in order. He was going to take broken things and fix them. When Jesus came and pronounced that he was the Messiah and the Jews knew he was the Messiah, they were offended that he did not grab a throne. Instead, he grabbed a cross and messed up the way they thought he was going to do it. But he still did what he said he was going to do. He began to set right what was broken. But in what theologians call the overlap of the ages, we still have death and decay. We still have disease. The old order is passing away, and the new has not fully come. That's why we live in a confusing time. When the world is telling us that if God were good, you would have everything you want. God will make everything good. And when it's good, you don't get everything you want. Because we trust in God's Faithfulness is what we've been studying in Romans since the beginning of this new year. So what does this mean for us? It means that we live in a world where there are real things to be paying attention to. We need to plan for tomorrow. We need to prepare. We need by faith, however, to understand that if we don't have enough, God is still faithful. 
So we are not to be engrossed in the things of this world. That's why Paul said, if you're married, don't make marriage your end all. If you have possessions, don't make them your end all. Notice what he did there. Because the time is short and our days are numbered. For some single people in the room today, singleness feels like a period of life that's a waiting game. And it may be temporary. But understand this. The Christian understanding of a single life should not be defined by our culture. It should be defined by the scriptures and by our Savior. And there's hope. So let's begin. Singleness is good and blessed. Now, when I told you at the beginning I need grace today, some of you may be looking and saying, well, that's easy for you to say because you're married. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But you need to understand the truth of the Bible says sometimes singleness is preferred. So it's not a lesser state. Singles cannot be looked as less fully formed. Because if you're going to believe that a person who's single and is not in a romantic relationship or in a marriage is missing something, then I have to ask you one simple question. What was Jesus missing? The most perfect man to ever live wasn't married. And I don't think he walked around all the time going, nobody loves me. I must not be valuable. Because he focused himself on the real relationship he was to have, and he was perfect. Stanley Hauerwas says, Christianity was the very first religion that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. In previous cultures, being able to have children and large number of children promoted your name. It allowed for them to care for you in your old age and provided all of these social uh, supports. And so if you weren't married, then someone had to take care of you and you were at the risk of your family and it created some major problems and all of this was present. Christianity came in and changed the game. Remember this overlap of the ages? God began to set things right. And in Acts chapter 6, the early church was told, you take care of the widows and the orphans. Interesting. What used to be cared for by the biological family was now being taken care of by the new spiritual community. And everything began to change. Why did the early church have this attitude? Because they were taught to de-idolize marriage. I want you to think about that with me. Am I just basically saying that Michael's sermon two weeks ago is not relevant? No, I'm not. Because when we put marriage in its proper perspective, it is one of the most beautiful gifts given. But when we idolize it, it becomes dangerous. And it has pathologies to it. Because what we begin to do is simply say that if you don't have another human being to fulfill you, you can't be fulfilled. And I'm here to tell you that's not biblical. When the gospel gets a hold of you and you understand its richness, you don't need another human to make you everything God designed you to be. You're created by God for a greater purpose. Singleness is not a plan B for the Christian life. Uh, Paige Benton Brown, in an article called Singled Out by God for Good, she had an amazing statement here. She said, I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am able to be single because God is so abundantly good to me. And in that, she has found her identity not in a relationship. She's found her identity in Jesus. And I know that that sounds strange for a married man to say, but for many of us, we have idolized marriage and that we don't need Jesus because we expect our spouse to be our savior. And there's a dangerous pathology to that. 
that I am here for my wife. I am not here so that she can make me happy, satisfied in all of these areas. So regardless of your marital status, seeking first the kingdom of God can be fully realized. This is what the New Testament broke into and offered singles today. So if the representative number is correct, 50% of you in the room today are single or single again. You've lost your spouse in some form. And you may love your condition, and that's beautiful. And you may not like your condition, and that's okay too. The truth is that if you seek first the kingdom of God, you can be fully realized no matter what your status is. And that's the hope. So how do we talk about the idolatry of marriage and dating? And here's why I want to talk about this. Because everything you read, if you take things like People Magazine or Entertainment Weekly, you will hear a reoccurring message. Unless you have someone beautiful who loves you and you're sexually active, you're so sad. And I'm here to tell you that's not true, church. And that's why I repent of not talking about this more often because the world talks about it every day. So we begin to believe if the church doesn't counter it, then what? It must be correct. You watch movies today. And if you're in a relationship, but you meet someone you're more sexually attracted to, then you owe it to yourself to leave what you're in and go pursue that. And I'm here to tell you that's another lie. That's another piece of fruit off the tree you should never eat. So how do we idolize marriage and dating? Timothy Keller calls it apocalyptic romance. I love that term. He says it is trying to find complete spiritual and emotional fulfillment in another human being. The message is that what matters is finding romance, and not just romance, but sustainable romance. As if the emotions of being wanted and wanting someone will be sustained over 50 or 60 years. I was really bored the other night, and I was trying to work on the sermon, and and I was hoping I'd get sick and not have to preach it. And uh, (laughs) the notebook came on TV. Oh my gosh, I'm going to offer a a goat as a sacrifice today for that wasted two hours. (laughs) That was not good stewardship. And I know it's romantic, but it's apocalyptic romance, church. That they needed each other and they died together. Oh, if I just spoiled the ending, I saved you two hours. Um. Actually, it's a cute movie, but it's not real. Is that clear? Yeah, because, yeah. I love the values of caring for each other, but the fact that passion, 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 you can't live passionately about anything, or you've never grown up. So we have romanticized it to apocalyptic nature. So let's look at what marriage means in the New Testament. This is not in contradiction to Ephesians 5. Because Ephesians 5 tells us clearly, marriage is not ultimately about sex, social stability, or personal fulfillment. Marriage was created to be a reflection of the love of God for each of us as we love one another. That's what Michael taught us, and he's right. You see, what marriage does, it points us to a real marriage with Jesus and to a real family called the church. So if you're sitting here today saying, well, I'm in a relationship and we're headed toward marriage or I'm married, what does this have to do with me? I want to tell you, if I brought up a subject matter such as addiction, you would not sit in this room today going, well, I'm not addicted. Let them deal with it. Your heart of compassion would say, how can I help them? How can I support them? How can I encourage them? I want you to have the same attitude today because I'm going to talk to married people today as much as I'm going to talk to single people. 
Because we are a family. And family cares for one another no matter what condition they find themselves, happily or sadly. And I also want to say this going forward. If you're single and you desire to be in a relationship, that's okay. I'm not judging you for trying to find, but I'm telling you this, whoever you're going to have this relationship with, they can't beat Jesus. And if you're single and you're happy being single, praise God for that too. Jesus will be enough there also. So, the idolatry of marriage distorts the single life the same way it distorts the married life. When we try to find a partner, that becomes our Jesus. Makes us feel good, makes us happy, gives us everything we want, and keeps that passion, passion, passion. Regardless of your marital status, remember this. Seeking first the kingdom of God can be fully realized. So what about dating? Most in Western society are deeply shaped by individualism, a fear and even hatred of limited options. That sounds more like us, doesn't it? Former cultures idolized marriage. You have to be married. You have to have a name. You have to have children. You have to to make this legacy moment in your life to prove that you're worth something. But our culture says, no, we're kind of going the opposite. We've made an idol out of independence. I want to make my own individual choices, and I want my own happiness, and nobody dare tell me I can't. That sounds like more of the world I'm living in. While the traditional motive for marriage was social, social duty, stability, and status, the contemporary motive for marriage was personal fulfillment. I want to be happy. I want someone who gives me everything I want, loves me until the day I die, and makes me feel good. But that's a very sophomoric approach to marriage. Marriage is the hardest work you'll ever do. Take a day off and see the results. It takes effort and intention and a lack of selfishness. But the fear of marriage in our culture is, and I know it's because of the divorce rate, but I also know it's because of the voices of our culture. Why are people waiting longer and longer and longer to get married? And I'm not suggesting, please, I think it's got to be a lot better than getting married at the 12 and 13 thing that was happening a few centuries ago. But people are waiting longer and longer to get married. And I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think it's for good reasons. I think it's because we're trying to find the perfect person to make us happy. Instead of saying, I'm trying to find a person that I can help grow spiritually with and both of us become the God-ordained person we're meant to be. Now, if you're sitting here married, that's the same purpose you still have, right? To live with this person and to become the God-ordained person you're meant to be. So as a modern result, if I may, modern dating has become remarkably a self-merchandising form. I'm going to present myself as a sexual entity. I'm going to present myself as socially sound. I'm going to present myself as financially viable, hoping that someone will match up to me and make me happy. That's an idolatry of dating as great as the idolatry of marriage. So, third point today. What do we do about celibacy, sex, and intimacy? I'm not feeling very well, so I'm going to step away at this moment. (laughs) This is something the church needs to say over and over and over. All human beings are created as sexual creatures. And let me say this clear. Sex is good, but it is not the ultimate good. It is a gift from God, but it is a gift to reveal intimacy at a level that we can relate to him, not something that makes us our own God. 
So sex is good, but it's not the ultimate good. All human beings are sexual creatures, whether they express it or not. And so until we admit to one another that we have desires, we have wants, that you may look around and say, well, if I don't have any of these desires and marriage is not for me, then you've, you've made marriage about sex instead of marriage about a relationship that grows you more toward God and the kingdom. And if that sounds unromantic to you, I dare you to try it and you'll find out it's the most romantic thing. Stanley Grant said, sexuality points to our nature as communal beings, as people made for relationship and intimacy, and to our desire to give ourselves to others and to receive them as we're received. I love that thought. Deep down inside, if we're honest with one another, we all want to be wanted. That's why when we do something nice, we don't do it for attaboys and attagirls. But when someone gives us an attaboy or an attagirl, don't we love it? Because we realize we gave them something and they received it. And when they received it, they received part of us and they liked it. So deep down inside, we all want to be wanted. That's why singleness is awkward for some because the world's told you if nobody wants you, then you must not be worth very much. And the moment you begin to wonder if your relationship defines your value, I will challenge you to do this. Sit at the foot of the cross for five minutes and ask yourself if the God of all creation would come to earth to love me this much, how much could any other human ever love me equally? And what you'll do is you'll diminish the social voice that says, You're simply defined by your Facebook status because you're not. And to be honest, no one's looking at your Facebook status. But God wants you to understand the idea that people can or should restrain themselves sexually in our culture seems wrong. And if not wrong, impossible. Once again, the world is speaking more about it, so we're believing what they're saying. And I know if you're going to roll your eyes at me today, this is where you're going to do it. I want you to understand that celibacy is not ridiculous. Celibacy is an act of worship. It's an act of faith and trust. And Paul challenges us in this. But I want you to know that God's prohibition about having sex before you're married is not punishment. And that prohibition is not bait to get you to get married. Do you hear me? He's not saying, well, if you're going to have sex, you've got to get married. If you only get married for sex, you be that honest with your fiance and see how that goes. Because they thought you were marrying them, not their body. But we live in a culture that defines you by who you're sleeping with. And we're defining everything by what kind of sex I want to have. Nobody cares. But you... And if you allow yourself to be fined by what sex you're having and with whom, then you have never understood the true value of which Jesus Christ gave his life for you. You are a spiritual, physical, emotional, and social creature. And every component of you needs to be alive in Christ that way. So even is your preacher saying that if you're single, you should remain celibate? I'm not. The Bible is. And it's not punishing you because God knows how you're wired and God knows how you're created. And when you take one one of the four components and you make that who you are, you've misunderstood the way God designed you for real satisfaction. Because you can have intimacy without sex. And you can have community without sex. And you can have your identity without sex. But our world tells us different. I love this definition. Celibacy is an exercise in practicing embodiment without sex. 
in cultivating physical touch without sexual intimacy. And in practicing agape love within the bounds of platonic friendships and family relationships. So yes, you can have the physical needs met without involving fornication or adultery. So it's not easy. I'm not standing up here saying, well, just you should never ever desire. No, 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 no. Physiologically, you're going to. But in those moments, do you trust that God's plan is greater than your own control? And so church, let me speak to all of us today. It is our duty to uphold those who struggle with sexual passions while single. We need to be graceful when they fail. Listen to me. We need to be grace-filled when they fail. And we need to hold them up and encourage them. We need to be a true community that doesn't look down like they're in a sad condition. Instead, realize for many of them, this is, they're choosing to do this as an act of worship to honor God. And we should be encouraging of them and supportive of them as equals. Because truth is, the Bible says, their condition is superior to ours. Because they're able to live out their faithfulness and focus in a more clear and distinct way than we do. So you can have sex without intimacy. You can also have intimacy without sex. Sex is a good gift from God, but remember, it's not the ultimate one. So this morning, I'd like to give what I believe is some biblical counsel for those of you that are single and single again, an encouragement. Michael gave me a good word after first hour. I want you to know that what you're going through is as useful to God as any other relationship condition you can be in. And it's not a pity thing. There's hope. First of all, you don't need to be married to be fulfilled. You don't need to be dating. You don't need to be on someone's Facebook page. You don't need to have any of those things. I think it's really ironic that I'm preaching this particular message on the Sunday after prom. Or some of our high school students are wondering if they have any value because they didn't get to dress up and go out. And I'm here to tell you today, your most value is found in this place not at a prom. Because here we want to tell you you're loved for whatever you are, as you are, the way God does. See, God's will for us is to love God and love our neighbor. It says nothing to do about being in a relationship. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. All of those things can be done whether you're married or single. Also, secondly, you need to understand the gift of singleness. I want to clear up what what has been a, a misconception on my own part and like to correct it. I used to think the gift of singleness was a person who never wanted to be in a relationship, never wanted to be sexually involved with anybody, and simply went through life with no interest in that at all. And then I realized that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying is there's a period of time where the giftedness is lays in the freedom you have to be involved in the kingdom of heaven to a greater degree. Now, studying this for the last three months, and I truly wish I had three more months, but studying this for the last three months, here's what I've concluded that we married people read that passage and think, oh yeah, single people don't have nearly the concerns we have with homes and, and uh, marriages and children. And we look, I'm like, oh, I wish I had. No, stop and think about it. A single person doesn't have someone to grocery shop with or buy the groceries on the way home from work. When their yard needs cut, they cut the yard. When something breaks, they have to fix it. Their, their costs aren't diminished. They don't go into Walmart and get milk for half cost because they're single. So let's not look down and be ridiculous about the application of this. What Paul's saying is, 
A single person who's not involved in this kind of romantic relationship has an opportunity to do more in those moments, whether it's a temporary state or for their lifetime, they have a chance to do something greater than those of us who are distracted by the world and its demands. And I believe every married person in this room knows that's true. So to those of you that are single, you have an opportunity that's amazing. So while you're single, invest in that and see what God does. Thirdly, and this will be my second controversial point. If I stand on this stage and say you're not to have sex until God gives you permission to have sex, that's awkward. How about this one? Do not seek a spouse with a non-believing person. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with the darkness? And I know that some of you will say, well, I know people who married or who started dating an unbeliever and they became a believer, right? Yeah, yeah, my mom and dad are an example of this. But do you know that that's the exception, not the rule? Because if your relationship truly is to grow each other to be the God-ordained person you're meant to be, how can you do that with someone who doesn't feel God-ordained or honoring of the king himself? It's controversial. So if you begin to have a relationship with someone and it becomes romantic and you begin to desire to spend your life with them, I want to encourage you this. You better have the boldness to talk about who Jesus Christ is to you or this person will never be able to help you become what you're to become. And you will have sacrificed the most beautiful relationship, which is to draw you into Christ's likeness for a relationship that simply began as romantic and that's maybe all it can offer you. So dating and marrying, the challenge for those of us that are single or single again is to make sure Jesus Christ is the forefront of every relationship and that relationship can become beautiful. And lastly, do not settle for less than God's best as his disciple. Romans talked about God's faithfulness and I would challenge you to rely on God's faithfulness. So church, today we are all in relationship. Whether you're married or single today, you're a part of God's family, God's kingdom. And we want you to know that those of you that are single or single again, your place here is is never in question. And most importantly, I want to say this to you, your value is never in question. So for some of us who always feel like we got to match make people to get them together, be careful. The person you may be trying to get connected with another person may be just satisfied right now where they are. And we need to encourage that rather than look down on that or try to fix it. And those of you that desire to be in a relationship, ask God to direct you. But seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added. Can we trust that our God is good, church? Can we trust that every one of God's promises will be fulfilled even when it seems like they won't? Then our trust is in the God that oversees our marriages, and shows us grace and oversees our parenting will also show us grace and oversee being single because your relationship doesn't give you value. God does. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.